Okay, today is Tuesday, July the 12th, getting close to the middle of July, I think it might get hotter, <laughs> if that's possible. <laughs> Are y'all praying for rain? Okay, don't get negative. That's the wrong glasses. <laughs> I'd like to see Doc going up that hill seven times. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. You know our SOP. Moment of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can assemble ourselves together to feed on your word. We're so thankful that you are our rock. The one that changes not. The one in control of all things. It's so great to look into your word and to go to you in prayer and recognize that you hear us, that you care about us, and that you have everything under control. But we live in the devil's world and we need to be able to utilize the pragmatic, practical principles that we find in your word. So we pray that you will help us to focus for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. There was something that I got from an email. The person who sent it to me is here, and maybe a couple of you might recognize it. And I cut it down to just a couple of paragraphs. It has to do with the older generation living in the high-tech tech age that we do. And it was pretty humorous, but just for the sake of time and brevity, I'm just going to the last two paragraphs. This is a man uh, <coughs> that wrote this, and he says, To be perfectly frank, I am still trying to learn how to use the cordless phones in our house. This guy is technically or technologically challenged. We have had them for four years, but I still haven't figured out how I can lose three phones all at the same time and have to run around digging under the chair cushions and checking the bathrooms and the dirty laundry baskets when the phone rings. I know the feeling. It's pretty exasperated. You hear it. I don't have three. I just have two. Anyway, then this is the best part. This is <clears throat> He's been talking about how um, his children bought him an a iPhone and he's supposed to stay up with Facebook and all these other things. <laughs> that was a hoot. But this is this the last, I saved the best for last. This is the last paragraph here. He says, "The world is just getting too complex for me. They even mess up every time I go to the grocery store. You would think they would settle on something themselves, but this sudden paper or plastic every time I check out just knocks me for a loop. I bought, bought some of those cloth reusable bags." to avoid looking confused, but I never remembered to take them in with me. 
Now I toss it back to them. When they ask me, paper or plastic, I just say, doesn't matter to me, I am bisexual. (laughs) (laughs) Then it's their turn to stare at me with a blank look. I was recently asked if I tweet. (laughs) 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 I answered, no, but I do toot a lot. That was just too good not to share. (laughs) See, that resonates with the -the over-the-hill gang like us. Okay, let's go to our 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Second Thessalonians chapter three. I think we're on verse ten. By the way, where are we going when we're through with chapter three? Y'all don't know? I'm not sure, but I'm already getting a fix on something. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We've got eight more verses. Verse 10, For even when we were with you, we used to give give you this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. That's about as concise and to the point. I love it. And we were looking at various verses that deal with this. And so many of these verses that you find in Proverbs use the term sluggard. You know what a slug is, don't you? They don't move too fast. And so Proverbs 6, 6 through 11, you can look at these with me if you'd like as we go through them. He uses the ant as an example. I love it when the Bible goes to animals to teach us things. You know, we can learn a lot of things from animals. Some animals are pretty smart. They can't talk. They don't do verbs. But they can get their point across, at least my cat can. When he wants to go outside, he goes to the door. He's sitting there looking at me, looking at the door and says, what's the problem? That's the look he gives me. Well, anyway, we're looking at the ant. We can learn something from the ant. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, old sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Still in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 26, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one 
to those who send him. I gave you a little dissertation about my my thinking on vinegar. I do not like it. I don't like to smell it. Proverbs 13:4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. Proverbs 24, 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Proverbs 26, 13 through 16. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. Remember this? A lion is in the open square! Exclamation point. And the door turns on its hinges. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. He's not getting out of bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is weary of bringing it to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. The Bible doesn't have anything that I've been able to see that is something positive to say about a sluggard. Now that's where we ended last time and we pick up a quote here. And I got this quote, well, I don't have it on this, on this part, but it was from one of the theological journals. And he's talking about those who do not work will not eat. This may seem like a minor infraction, but this, this writer of this journal thinks it's more than that. Quote, rather than consisting of a minor infraction, the offense of the disorderly was grave and significant. Both their lack of work and their meddlesome behavior were intrinsically blameworthy in that they contradicted the apostolic tradition which Paul had delivered to the Thessalonians with the authority of the Lord Jesus. Moreover, the dual offense appears to have demonstrated a lack of Christian love, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 through 10. And so you have... This disorderliness is actually a ignoring of the commands and the authority, and that goes along with the slaggard, slovenly attitude. Continue to quote now. Further, further while their willful unemployment might not have met with disapproval from their pagan neighbors, their meddling behavior would certainly have given needless offense, thus harming the testimony of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.12 The seriousness of the situation is highlighted by its placement at the end of the letter for emphasis and by the bluntly authoritative language which Paul uses in the passage. So this isn't just a minor thing. Paul is dead serious about this. We might get that understanding when he commands them in the name of the Lord Jesus, which actually adds more weight to it. Further, the offenders were not guilty of merely a single incident of disorderliness, nor were they acting in ignorance. They had been clearly instructed as to working for a living, and they persisted in their disorderly behavior in the face of of repeated admonition by both the apostle in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 and 
and presumably by the congregation in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 2 Thessalonians 3, 4. It is evident that the infraction of the disorderly had gone beyond intentional unemployment and involved a rebellious unwillingness to submit to apostolic authority. One would expect Paul to respond strongly to the disorderly, and he does just that. So what we have here is not just a little slight rebuke. He is trying to nip this in the bud. Then I have this last part. People should be industrious themselves rather than slowing down or stopping the productive work of others through idle chatter. I remember when I was building this log home model over here, that was, what made it exceedingly difficult was the fact that it's right here on the highways. People saw something going up and they would stop in. And this is a typical thing. When I was ha uh, hanging the ceiling fan from the vaulted ceiling, it's actually a cathedral ceiling. It's about, I don't know, 15, 18 feet high. I'm at the top of this ladder. I have my mouth full of screws and nails. And I've got the wires at a place where I can't let them go. I've got to connect the wires. And someone comes in. Hey, how are you doing up there? Well, uh, how much does a house like this cost? Do you build it? And he gives a list of about ten questions. And I'm trying to mumble out something that, and not swallow the screws. And totally, un uh, he didn't know. He didn't intentionally mean to get on my bad side by chit-chat in the middle of me trying to be productive and get some work done. So I'm telling you that when you go visit a friend, whenever you go somewhere and they are in the middle of something, they're being productive, you need to take note of that. Now, they, maybe they're working, they, they would appreciate a break, and you, they say, well, let's come on, let's chat, let's have a cup of coffee or something like that, and that's fine. But if they keep working, you don't know. It might be a crisis situation. Whatever they're doing may be imperative that they get it fixed or get so far in what they're doing. And as they would like to be cordial. They would like to chit-chat, but they simply don't have the time. They're trying to do something. We need to recognize that and say, I'll talk to you later. It was good seeing you. Call me sometime or whatever. That is the thoughtful thing to do. It's actually somewhat, I don't know whether you would call it arrogant or demanding, that whenever you show up somewhere, and usually these times are unannounced, and someone's trying to do something, at least give, ask them, is this a good time? Uh, would you rather me come back later? Or what might even be better is get in there and help them, whatever they mean, offer your help. I just thought I would throw that in because it was a good place to do it. Now verse 12. <clears throat> now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. This is the verse where he adds. Not only as he says uh, he is commanding them and exhorting them, but he does it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when he does that, it adds weight to what he's saying. This may seem like it's just simple instructions, 
not a big deal, but when you use a large name this way, this apostle is meaning business, and he's getting that point across. Paul had instructed the church to shun the idol and to withhold food from them, and now he gives instructions to ones who needed to change their behavior. See, first of all, he gave instructions on how to deal with these people to the ones who were doing right, to the other members of the church. He says, shun them if they are going to go against what I've taught, if they are idle, if they are causing trouble, if they are busybodies, shun them. If they don't work, don't feed them. Those were the instructions to the ones who were minding their own business and who were working. Now he turns his sights on those who were in the wrong. Now, such persons we command. The word here, <coughs> excuse me, we command is paraangelo, P-A-R-A-G-G. Do I have three G's there? <laughs> okay, I thought maybe I just was, my eyes were running together there or something. Let me get one of those out. That's two G's. Okay. Parangelo, par it's a verb, present active indicative. And it means, as we've already seen, uh, this verb is used in, in, in this chapter, in chapter 3, in verse 4, 6, and 10, the previous verse. So we don't go, need to go a lot into it. We've already gone into it quite a bit. Paul was not bashful about exercising his authority when it was necessary. If these errant believers defied this command, they were going to be in big-time trouble. They would be shunned, and food would be withheld from them. That's two biggies. Shunned means that no one in the church would have anything to do with them. Remember the doctrine of separation? They were employing the doctrine of separation. You can also call that shunning. It's a very serious type of discipline. And it's the point is to have people recognize how egregious their sin is and to own up to it and to change. <clears throat> and they withheld food from them. When, you, when you're not working and you're not getting food from somebody else, that will get your attention. That plus the shunning should do the trick. So he's commanding them now, and this is a, a present active indicative, meaning he continued to command them. Paul did it, indicative mood. It wasn't just a potential. He was doing it. He was commanding them. Now we'll see that he adds this other part to it. And exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have this, maybe you've recognized this word. We've seen it so often. Parakaleo. Para means to the side, and kaleo means to call, to call the side. And there's a, a pretty wide range of meanings with regards to this word. It also is a verb and a present active indicative. He kept on doing this, exhorting them. But exhorting and commanding are not the same. This means to call to one side, uh, to help, comfort, to give consolation or encouragement. 
to entreat, beseech, or urge. It means all those things. The fact that Paul included in the Lord Jesus Christ added weight to this exhortation. The episkopos, that would be the pastor-teacher, must be, this has to do with exhorting. We find this in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. We see example of instructions to exhort. This was given by Paul. This is one of the pastoral epistles, along with First and Second Timothy and Titus we have. He says, Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the, with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So one of the pastor's duties is to exhort in sound doctrine, to encourage, to urge in sound doctrine, and to refute those who contradict. I've seen just about every imperative, just about every command that is given specifically to pastors also apply to people who don't have that spiritual gift, believers just as well. I think that you should be able to exhort in sound doctrine. It's not just grabbing someone's hand, they're there, it'll be okay. It means that you can assess the situation, you can analyze what needs to be done from a biblical perspective, and you can go to verses if necessary, and you can exhort that way. And that's the most powerful way that you can do it. That's, that holds true, especially when you are exhorting another believer. But that's only one side of the coin. Now, again, this is just for pastors, at, at least in the context here. Paul is writing uh, Titus here. But to refute those who contradict. Do you all know the theological term for that? What is, it, what is the theological term that is incumbent upon us all? We are to employ this when someone is trying to assert false doctrines. We have to defend ourselves, which is, what is that called? Apologetics. Remember that? Probably it was not that long ago that I spent, I don't know how long, on apologetics. It's on the uh, website. That's why we need to review from time to time. Apologetics means you're able to refute false doctrines. And the need for that today is more than I've ever seen it before, at least in my lifetime. There are so many false doctrines out there. There are so few people that sign on to sound doctrine. You have the postmodernism, no absolutes. You're... Your idea is as good as anybody else's. The Bible isn't absolute. Everything is relative. You have so many out there that are into uh, the Pentecostals, the tongues, the healing. You have most people are ecumenical in their thinking. It's all about unity. Doctrine divides. Uh, if you are going to make an issue and stand firm on a doctrinal principle, well, you're just not very loving. All of these things we have to face constantly. And I don't, I, maybe I face more than you do because when people know that you're a pastor, 
they want to run everything by you. And, and that's fine. That keeps me sharp. I have to be alert. But I'm not the only one. You have to be sharp and alert also. On the whole realm of doctrine, where there might be somebody that wants to challenge you with regard to speaking in tongues, it might be someone who, won't, who is a preterist, believes that all prophecy has already been fulfilled, and it was by 70 A.D. Or it might be someone who is into replacement theology. They think that the church has replaced Israel. Or it might be someone who is in Calvinism. And they think that we have no free will, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and it was limited to only those that God chose to save. Or it could be someone who is in lordship salvation. They think that you must make Jesus Christ Lord of your life, and if you don't do that, chances are you weren't really saved to begin with. I could go on and on. And then there's even practical things as to who you associate, what are you going to do. You have to make these decisions all the time. It can be something as what I would call somewhat insignificant as tithing, or it could be that one of the buzzwords like baptism. Now, I've mentioned a few of the things. Are you comfortable with addressing those issues? Are you ready to stand firm for the faith, what the Word of God has to say about these things? It's certainly incumbent upon me as a pastor, but it's also you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because you are an ambassador. We are to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us any time from anybody. Remember that verse? I can't call it to mind. I can't remember the address. So that might be one of our memory verses. And I challenge anyone that is in this church or goes to this church or hears this tape, as we have our memory verse, it's going to be on, from now on, it's going to be on the front of the bulletin. Every month we're going to have a different memory verse. And shame on you if you don't memorize it. If you can't memorize a verse in a month, you're not very serious about your spiritual life. So we need to be able to refute those who contradict the truth. Sometimes the Word of God steps on our toes and gives us a needed thrashing. But more often, more often it exhorts and encourages, gives us hope and inspires us to keep fighting the good fight, even, we want, even, even when we want to throw in the towel. That's what exhortation is, and that's what he's doing. He is exhorting them. He is encouraging them. And that went along with the command. So when you have the command and the exhortation and you have it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, He's getting their attention. Everyone would benefit if there was less criticism and more encouragement. Constructive criticism can be beneficial, but it's hard to take and often leads to discouragement. Encouragement, on the other hand, gives just the lift people need to help them keep on trying. Some people take criticism better than others. I'm one of the others. It's hard for me to take criticism, even when it's given constructively, 
And I don't know, all of our attitudes are different. You might have the attitude that when someone, when you write something and you're so proud of it and you give it to someone and, they, and you're expecting this just wonderful litany of uh, accolades and how just marvelous this thing is that you wrote. And then it comes back and from various editors and each one of them pretty well rip it to shreds. You might be the one, I'm so happy that I did this. I'm so thankful for your remarks. Well, you may be, but you also may be, be like me and have your ego trounced upon. So just remember, exhortation means encouragement. And I think encouragement is needed more than criticizing. The easiest thing to do is criticize someone else. And those that are professional criticizers are those that do the least. Because after all, if you don't do anything, you don't have to be criticized. Okay, the next to work. Here we have an exhort. They were commanded and exhorted in the Lord Jesus Christ in His name to work. Now, we've already worked, worked to death nearly, haven't we? Remember, this? Uh, the Greek word here for work is uh, ergonzomai, and we went into all this. Remember the word play I had on ex, ex, uh, uh, ergonzomai? And I, I spell it all out, and I'm so proud of this word play. And I think you got it, maybe. Anyway, we have it here again. This is a participle, and it's the present middle participle. It means not to just work one day. It means to keep on working. They were commanded and exhorted to work tomorrow, the next day, the next day, next week, next month, on and on. That's what they were to do. And the middle voice is reflexes. It means that they were going to be benefited by this. By the way, when you have a middle voice and it's reflective, reflexive, I mean, and it means that whatever you do is going to reflect back on you, whether it's for ill or whether it's for good. How can you tell when it's in the middle voice whether it's for ill or whether it's for good? The context. It's not a grammar thing. It's the context. So we know that this is going to be through their good if they work. They're going to be back on track. They're not going to have people who are having to support them. They can support themselves. This is the good part of it. Now this word is described. It's described. Uh, it, 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 now this word is, uh, should be described what they were not doing. Yeah, I got an extra deal there. Do I have that twice? No. Okay, now it's, uh, it's used to command the errant believers to get busy. Now this is not, you'll notice, this is a participle. A participle doesn't have a mood, so it can't be in the uh, imperative mood because there is no, no imperative here. But what had, what had uh, preceded this, it was a command and it was also an exhortation means that this is a command. Even though this is a participle, you add the command to it, it's an imperative. So they are to work. Now look at this, in quiet fashion. And here we have hesuchia, H-E-S-U-C-H-I-A. It's a noun, genitive, singular, feminine. 
It means quietness, tranquility, silence, referring to a quiet life, a state of quietness without disturbance. Proper understanding of this verse is important. Otherwise, a man who earns a living by operating a jackhammer wouldn't be able to obey this command, would he? Huh? Work in a quiet fashion. How do you muffle a jackhammer? Y'all know what a jackhammer is, right? Like this. We know that's not what it's talking about. In one sense, however, this word means a literal quietness. It means a state of saying very little or nothing. These offenders were getting into trouble because they were talking too much, being busybodies when they should have been working. So there is a certain nuance to this word when it says that you are to work in a quiet fashion. They were running their mouth rather than their their feet or their hands or whatever they should have been in motion. What was in motion most was their mouth. And I think that he says work in a quiet fashion. You can't be a busybody and not have a big mouth or a overworked mouth. So there is something to that, but that's more of the minor nuance. Working in a quiet fashion also means to settle down, stay at home, and stay away from drama. Does that communicate? If you're a busybody, you are up to your ears in drama. Some people like that. But it's not getting any work done. I remember, <laughs> boy, my mind just flashed back about 30-something years ago. There was a, I, I was working on an apartment building, and I, this, see, I, it was, when, when did they go to the moon? Was this 1961? Was it 68? No, it had, yeah, it had to be 68, 69. Anyway, it was when they were going to the moon I was working on this job. So it was around 1968 or 69, something like that. And uh, there was this big guy. He was a black guy. He was huge. And he drove what they called a lull. It's a big forklift. I mean, wheels this big. He worked for the bricklayers, and he would put all these bricks all on the forks. And when they first got started every morning, he would be taking on his law, he'd be on that machine, and he'd go around the entire site uh, delivering bricks to the bricklayers. And every person he came by early in that morning, this is what he said, and he's a big old black guy, and he says, Hey, good morning. Let's get some wakes, did. <laughs> Let's get some wakes, did. And I loved it. He was he was a, a marvelous, he always was so cheery, had the greatest character and personality. In fact, he wasn't, usually trades don't interact all that much, but he was such a, a marvelous man that my grandfather, uh, he retired while he was on that job, and we gave him a little party, um, not a big deal, but just a little party uh, when he, the last day he was going to be there, he retired. I can't remember the guy's name, but this big, black, lovable, wonderful man came to the party and gave him a really nice gift. That's the, the, the kind of guy he was. And there's a few friends that I have that were on that job, and whenever we go out, in fact, remember when, I, I don't know, it was 
month ago, whenever, when I went offshore fishing, I might have told you about it, it was one of my old plumber friends. And when I got there, we got in the boat, and he turned to me, and you know what he said? You ready to get some wakes, did? <laughs> and I just grinned, I just loved it. Let's get some wakes, did. So um, that's, that's what he's wanting these people to do, because work is actually a blessing. It's not... Uh, it's not a curse. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 17. Let your foot rely, uh, excuse me, let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house or he will become weary of you and hate you. You might want to put that up on your, <laughs> someplace where your neighbor can see it. <laughs> That's a biblical verse right there. Especially when it comes to borrowing and mooching. I love the Bible gets right down to it, doesn't it? I've thought about one of these days teaching Proverbs, but I'm afraid I'd never get out of it. I'd love it so much we just would be there. So when you, it says, let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house. Now I know that some of you may have neighbors and you might be close to them. But don't forget this verse. You can overstay your welcome. That goes for any of us anywhere. We need to be cognizant of that. Because most people won't tell you, uh, you've stayed long enough, we had a good time, but now it's time to go home. They won't tell you that. They'll just think it. But you should, they shouldn't have to tell you that because the Bible's telling you right here. Working in a quiet fashion is the antithesis of living a disorderly life, being a busybody, and stirring up trouble. Freeloading Christians who don't mind their own business and cause trouble are not good examples to other Christians or unbelievers. That's another issue that Paul was concerned about. And we have it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. He's saying the reason you do this, one reason you do it, is that you will behave properly to outsiders. Who are outsiders? Unbelievers. They're watching you. And if you're always in the middle of, of drama, if you're always in need and you're always having to go to other people and borrow and all this, it's not a good recommendation to unbelievers. Now Paul emphasized the importance of leading a quiet life in his first epistle that was by the way from 1 Thessalonians. He told the Thessalonians to mind their own business and to work with their hands. By the way, there is nothing degrading about manual labor. Our society has adopted the idea it is demeaning to work with your hands and that success is measured by graduating from a prestigious college and working in a fancy office. It is the character of a person that determines if he or she is a success, not how much money they make or what their title or credentials may be. I think we live in a snobby society these days. And it didn't come on us just lately. It's been like that for a long time. I went to a university, and I know 
But, and I'm, sometimes y'all might think, there you go, getting on his college kick again. But when I was in high school, not, not everybody went to college. In fact, quite a few didn't have a desire to go. I was one of them. And people would come up to me when I was a senior and they would say, well, what college are you going to? And I thought, that's pretty presumptuous. What college am I? How do you know I'm going to college to begin with? Maybe I want to be learn a trade. But if you didn't go to college, you know, it was they'd lower their eyes like you're a second-class citizen. We're talking about working with their hands. Did you see it in this verse? There it is right there. Work with your hands. We're talking about manual labor. We don't have classes in America such as nobility and commoners, but we do label people who work with their hands blue-collar workers and those who don't white-collar workers, don't we? We need both types of workers, but there is a shortage of blue-collar workers in our country these days. We are no longer a manufacturing country. We have become a service-oriented country. We now depend on other countries to produce the things we consume. And that is not a good place to be in. You know what I'm saying, I hope. We have 20 million illegal aliens over here doing the manual labor because we're too good to do it anymore for the most part. And you can see it when we were having things done on this church. There was a few things that we hired done and somebody would come up here and they'd have a nice, bright, new, shiny truck and, and we thought, well, this looks like a really reputable company, country, uh, company. And maybe they were, but there were no American citizens that did the work. And that's become the case more and more. And you know it and I know it. And that's not a good thing. You know what I was talking about up here that you don't measure success by how much money you make or the credentials you have? When I was... I worked on the shell building. Do you all remember the shell buildings downtown? They were the biggest concrete structures in the world at that time. The shell one, it was 50 stories tall. And <clears throat> when I was working on it, especially in the, in the winter, you don't know what cold is unless you're close to 50 stories high and there's no walls and the north wind is blowing in there. And I would be in there. <clears throat> I wasn't on the 50-story story, uh, part at this time, the, the story I'm telling you. Because 50 stories was the biggest building in Houston. There was nobody to look in. I was probably down around the 30th floor or something like this. And there was people over in the office building that were looking at us. And they made this sign, this big sign, and they held it up here. And they said, it's 70 degrees in here. They held it up and showed it to us like this. You know what we did? We made a sign that said, it's $17 an hour out here. <laughs> $17 an hour was a lot of money back then. I don't know, that just came to mind. That was one of them. And eat their own bread. We have estio. It's a verb, present, active, subjunctive. And it just means to eat. And they were to continue to it, present tense. The subjunctive mood illustrates that whether they 
eat their own bread or not depended on their attitude to whether they will obey this command or not to work. All believers should strive to be self-reliant and earn their own living. Here's another. I'm giving you some practical things that I see are pertinent here. Our unemployment rate is closing in on 10%. A large portion of our population is having difficulty finding a job. Executives and people who once had white-collar jobs need to be willing to work blue-collar jobs in order to keep food on the table. There's no disgrace in digging ditches or collecting garbage in order to pay the bills. And I fear there's a lot of people out there that are used to working in offices and they have degrees. Some of them are pumping gas and glad to have that job, whatever it may be. But I wonder how many are on welfare, how many are collecting unemployment and all the other things because they're still looking for a job that they consider worthy of their status. Now I can say, pers- I can tell you from my own experience that when it gets to a point, you need to do what you have to do in order to work When I had this log home business over here, Landmark Log Homes, that was our model home. It was in the early 80s, and everything was booming. Of course, the interest rate was 20%, but anyway, anybody could get money, and there was more jobs and more things you could do. And I had a sales staff. All we did was I was in sales. That's when the oil crunch, you know, everything went south. The economy took a nosedive. And I started going out. Fortunately, I had the experience to do it and started actually building the log homes also because I had to do it in order to pay the bills, keep food on the table and so forth. It wasn't demeaning to me. I was just thankful that I was able to do it. One one man band. (laughs) It was a construction company. And the head uh, of the company was me. The person that ordered the material was me. The one that blew the blueprints was me. The one that hired the workers were me. The one that hauled them to the job was me. The one who paid them was me. And if anything went wrong on that job, guess who it came to? (laughs) All I'm saying is that we need to be practical and recognize that this admonition from Paul, this command, if you don't work, you don't eat, has a wide range of repercussions. And I'm afraid that we may as a country have to learn this the hard way. I saw on the news tonight that they don't know if they're going to come to a agreement as to how they're going to, what they're going to do with the budget. And the, the president said that he didn't know if the Social Security checks are going out, whether the military is going to get paid or anything else. And I think this is appropriate for us to recognize that for those who can, the Bible, upon the authority of the Apostle Paul, on orders that came from the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're able to work, work. And if enough people did that, I think there'd be uh, enough 
enough supply for those who can't work. I'd like to see it go back to where it's the churches and the families that support the needy because that's the way it has always been until things changed. Okay, let's, uh, what time is it? Before we go on to the next verse, this would be a good verse to stop. We are going to get through with Second Thessalonians. We covered essentially one verse tonight for the most part. But there's a lot of good principles there. We only have uh, a few verses left, and we'll take we'll take verse thir- uh, 12 next time. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time we have to fellowship in your word. We're so thankful that your word is loud and clear. It's not willy-nilly. You are able to give us the revelation that you want us to know. We thank you for that we have been blessed. We Most of us have jobs. And we are to give you thanks for all things. So we pray that you will help us heed this, that we will work with our hands or with our minds, whatever we need to do, and stay away from the busybody attitude We thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.